0: So last month we spoke about John the Twenty Third and how it was that he devised the idea to hold an ecumenical council so that he could uh, bypass, as it were, the Roman Curia and began to spread the modernism in the church. And so it was that on Thursday October 11th, 1962, Vatican II formally opened. When John XXIII reached the altar in the front of the Sistine Chapel or front of the hall, he knelt down to pray. The first official prayer of the Second Vatican Council was the Veni Creator Spiritus. That is a most ancient prayer to the Holy Ghost. In which John the 23rd and the Council Fathers, according to this certain author, together called upon the Holy Ghost for light and guidance for the great task ahead. After this prayer was said, Mass was celebrated by John the 23rd, after which the Book of the Gospels was solemnly enthroned upon the altar. And by the way, that is a custom that dates back to most ancient times. Ecumenical councils, the Book of the Gospels is solemnly enthroned upon the altar. Interesting to note that at the Council of Trent. Next to the Book of the Gospels, after it was solemnly enthroned, the Summa Theologica of St. Thomas Aquinas was then enthroned upon the altar at the Council of Trent. But this author writes that John XXIII then made his opening address. He was confident and he stated in most positive terms that the church was going to draw a new energy and a new strength from this council. And she would look to the future without fear. It was a speech that opened in a most positive tone But as he was speaking, the speech suddenly assumed a tenor of sharp criticism and condemnation. I've been reading to you from the work Letters from Vatican City by the author Xavier Wren. Who I told you was a modernist, redemptorist priest. And I'd like to read to you what Xavier Rin said about the opening speech of John the 23rd. He writes in a clear and resonant tone that could be distinctly heard throughout the Basilica. The Pope, after a few introductory remarks, said, and those introductory remarks, as I've mentioned, were all very positive, but after these few introductory remarks, the Pope said he was tired of listening to the prophets of doom among his advisors. And that is the expression he used. Prophets of doom. Through burning, the, burning with zeal, Xavier Wren writes, actually, I'm sorry, these are John the Twenty-Third's own words here about these so-called prophets of doom. Though they are burning with zeal for the church, these men are not endowed with much sense of discretion or measure. These men, he says, and these, of course, these prophets of doom, these men are members of the Roman Curia. They are Cardinal Otaviani, Cardinal whom I talked about last month, Cardinal Ernesto Ruffini, Cardinal Giuseppe Siri, and a number of others who are obstacles to John the But John the is speaking of them. He says of them, they maintain that our era, in comparison with the past, is getting worse.
1: They behaved,
0: John the 23rd said, as though they learned nothing from history. John the 23rd then said, they are under the illusion that at the time of formal councils of the church, everything was a triumph for Christianity. Everything was a triumph for For a true way of Christian life. And John the 23rd said this. We feel that we must disagree. With these prophets of doom. Who are always forecasting disaster. As though the end of the world were at hand. And continually warning. That the modern world is full of prevarication and ruin. That's the excerpt from the beginning of John the 20 opening speech. These prophets of doom among the Roman Curia and perhaps their allies in the in the episcopate, and how they see the modern times as getting worse. And what was getting worse? Some of you may recall, and I don't want to carbon date you here, but after World War II, 1950s, things did, morality did. There was a decline, there was a movement The last 55 years or so since Vatican II has proved beyond doubt for those who are of good will and who have the use of reason and who are aware of what is going on around them, that the so-called prophets of doom were absolutely correct. But Xavier Wren continues in his description of John the Twenty-Third's opening speech. Xavier Wren says, as the listeners heard, because remember, he's in the council hall. He heard the speech. And he says, as the listeners, who are the listeners? They're all the bishops and the theologians. As they heard these words of the Pope, their attention focused irresistibly on the face of Cardinal Ottaviani. As you see, he sat right next to the Pope at the council. Cardinal Ottaviani, he says, the secretary of the Congregation of the Holy Office, who was seated at the Pope's immediate right. Their attention also focused, he said, on the face of the recently consecrated Archbishop Enrico Dante, the papal master of ceremonies at the Pope's left. And a half-step to the rear, their attention focused on the face of Cardinal Siri of Genoa and Cardinal Ruffini of Palermo, sitting in the tier reserve of the sacred college. And then Xavier Wynne says this in his book of these illustrious men. He says, these were the faces of some of the prophets of doom. Of whom the Holy Father was speaking. As I read through Xavier Rin's book, I actually felt that we owe him a debt of gratitude because the information that he recorded firsthand at Vatican II and about John the Twenty-third is undeniable proof in the 50 years of the wake of the council that Ataviani and Ruffini and Siri and the others like him were trying to save the Church. They were trying, in other words, to preserve the Catholic faith and to stay, to neutralize the attack of modernism on the Church. Just as Father Gary Goulagrange, whom I've mentioned in past conferences, the illustrious Dominican theologian, just as he, at the same time, or in the late 40s and 50s, he was defending the faith against the modernism and the universities and the seminaries. So these prelates of the Roman Curia were striving to stay the attack of modernism in the very Vatican itself. And furthermore, the more I read Xavier Rin's book, it became extremely clear without any doubt that John the 23rd was indeed a modernist. So the first part of his speech was a positive introduction followed by a humiliating criticism and condemnation Of a few of the most faithful, illustrious, and worthy men on the Roman Curia. And in front of the 2,000 bishops, this was done. The next part of his speech dealt with why he called the council. And what he said, he expected the council fathers to accomplish. Concerning this, Xavier Wren wrote, the Pope then proceeded to outline serenely and optimistically what he expected of the council and why he summoned it. John Twenty-Third then said, Divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations. It is imperative, he said, that the church bring herself up to date where required in order to spread her message to all men throughout the world. Nevertheless, She must not depart from the sacred patrimony of truth received from the fathers. That's what John the 23rd says. The church must not depart from the sacred patrimony of truth received from the fathers. But then he says this. However, she must ever look to the present to new conditions and new forms of life introduced into the modern world, which have opened new avenues to the Catholic apostolate. Remember modernism and ambiguity is almost, you could say, synonymous. Ambiguity, as I explained once before, is you can understand it in this way or someone can understand it in another way. And who's to say who's right or who's wrong? What he's saying here is all couched in ambiguity. New forms of life introduced into the modern world. What does that mean? A new form of life. A new species evolved? It doesn't say. But what John the 23rd is saying is that we have to update the church. And the reason we have to update the church, and therefore the purpose of Vatican II, is to update how the church teaches her divinely revealed dogmas, morons, the sacraments, the mass. So that this message of the gospel will be more understood because the modern world has changed. People don't understand the gospel anymore. People don't understand the mass. They don't understand the sacraments. They don't understand Catholic morality. we got to update it. We're not going to change it, he said. We're just going to update how we present it. Well, that leads me to talk to you now about something we call the deposit of faith. Because he stated in his opening talk, he talked about the sacred deposit of faith. He said, we're not going to change that. We can't change that. We want to change how we present it. But what is the sacred deposit of faith? Do you know that expression, deposit of faith, occurs twice in sacred scripture? First epistle, to St. Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20. Second epistle to St. Timothy, chapter 4, verse 14. And St. Paul, in writing to Timothy, who was his most faithful companion in the Apostle, St. Paul, writing to St. Timothy, whom he had personally, of course, instructed in the faith, and then personally consecrated the Bishop of Ephesus. He writes to Timothy using this expression, deposit of faith. And it is in reference to the whole divine revelation that St. Paul has committed or transmitted to the care of St. Timothy. A certain theologian explaining the term deposit of faith said this, The deposit which St. Paul transmits to his faithful collaborator, Timothy, is the whole of divine revelation. That is, it is the dogmas of faith, it is Catholic morality, it is the Mass, it is the sacraments, it is Holy Scripture, and it is the hierarchical constitution of the Church. So, in other words, The deposit of faith is all the divinely revealed and infallibly taught dogmas of the church, all the dogmatic teachings of the church, Catholic morality, the mass, the sacraments, Holy Scripture, that is, the Gospels, the entire Old Testament, the entire New Testament, is the deposit of faith and the hierarchical constitution of the church is part of the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith has come down to us from Christ himself. Christ transmitted the deposit of faith to the apostles. They transmitted the deposit of faith to the bishops and it is passed down from generation to generation. And this cannot be changed. You cannot change anything that is in the deposit of faith. <clears throat> Interesting to remark is that it was not long after Francis's election You know, he has said so many things. No one can possibly, as it were, keep track of all these, uh, objectively speaking, heretical things he has said. But what he did put in there soon after his so-called election is that he made a suggestion, a call to change the constitution, the hierarchical constitution of the church. And I just mentioned to you the hierarchical constitution of the church is part of the deposit of faith received from Christ. You can't change that. To even suggest it is heresy. The hierarchical constitution, we mean Pope, bishops, clergy, the faith. That is how the church was established. And he said, we need to make it more democratic. But as you'll see at a future conference, when we look at the 16 documents of Vatican II, and we look at the document which talks about the constitution of the church, what Francis said is really not new. It's not his own idea that just came to him. The seeds for it are right there in Vatican. II. But in his clever modernistic use of ambiguity, John the Twenty-third made a statement in regard to deposit of faith. And I'm going to read you, this is actually an entire excerpt from his opening speech. And uh, as I say, it's it's, because it's so ambiguous, it is difficult to follow. But I'm going to read it very slowly, and then I'm going to explain it to you. Because this is it right here. John the 23rd said, The salient point of this council is not, therefore, a discussion of one article or another article of the fundamental doctrine of the Church, which has repeatedly been taught by the fathers and most ancient theologians in which is presumed to be well known and familiar to all. For this, a council was not necessary. And some other words he's saying here, this council is not called to discuss this point or that point of some doctrine or dogma of faith. We're all familiar, he said with it. That's not why we have this council. Then he goes on to say these words. But from the renewed, serene, and tranquil adherence to all the teachings of the church in its entirety and preciseness. Right? You hear those all those beautiful words he says there? But from the renewed serene and tranquil adherence to all the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness the Christian and apostolic spirit of the whole world expects a step forward toward a doctrinal penetration and a formation of consciousness in the faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine. Which, however, should be studied and expounded through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern Substance, he concludes, of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing. But the way in which it is presented is another. And it is the latter that must be taken into consideration. It is in these words right here that I believe he was struck down from the papacy. Note these words here. Just covered in ambiguity. What is he saying here? He's saying we're not going to change the deposit of faith. We're going to change how it's presented. We're going to study methods of research, literary forms of modern thought, and how we can represent to the whole world the dogmatic teachings of the Church, Catholic morality, the Mass, the sacraments, the sacred scriptures, and even the hierarchical constitution of the Church. And we're going to represent it. We're going to change how we present these things, he's saying, so that they can conform with the change that has occurred in the way men think. That's the gist of it right there. He wants to change how we teach these things, how we present these things, how Mass is offered. How the sacraments are administered. What sacred scripture is really saying. But yet at the same time he says. We're not going to change the deposit of faith. We're going to change how it's presented. And what he was really calling for. Was a redefinition of dogma, Morality. A change in the mass of the sacraments and a change in regard to how Catholic morality is enforced. So what does it mean in the practical order to say, for example, we're going to change how we present the teaching of the Holy Eucharist? That was defined by the Council of Trent, you read through the the dogmatic decrees of the Council of Trent and its definitions on the Holy Eucharist, there is not an ounce, a speck of ambiguity in any of those doctrines. It is so straightforward that the Protestants know it. And the, the, the Protestant theology on the Holy Eucharist was utterly condemned by the Council of Trent. There was no mistake. The dogmas of the Holy Eucharist, here is what they say, and here is how the Church presented it. She presented those dogmas as it is defined. John the 23rd is saying we can make a distinction between the dogma itself and how we teach it. Which means in the practical order changing it We're going to change it. Remember what St. Pius X said about modernism that it was going to change the Catholic religion. The foundation of the Catholic religion is the sacred deposit of faith received from Christ transmitted to the apostles and then to the bishops from generation to generation. And to change the manner, to change the wording in which the church presents the dogmas and morals of the faith, or how she offers the Mass and administers the sacraments, it is to change the very substance of these things. It is to change the deposit of That is exactly what has happened. It is exactly what has happened. It was no accident. It was designed. Just like the universe is a product of intelligent design and not chance, what happened at Vatican II was not by chance. It was by design that they did this. You know, I heard a, I forget what diocese he was from, some bishop years ago on a news interview when they were doing the celebrations for the opening of the Vatican II, 50 years when Vatican II opened in uh, 2012. And uh, I was in some airport somewhere watching some news uh, channel, and they were interviewing some bishop about Vatican II, and he was saying, yes, Vatican II, uh, it was <laughs> I'm forbid, forbid, forbid me forgive me for saying this up here, but he said and that Vatican II is probably the greatest council in the whole history of the church. Right? Of course he's got to say that, right? Because then he was asked, How do you explain all the confusion that followed Vatican II? He says, Well, you know what happened? He said the teachings of Vatican II were just so lofty, so up there, that people just didn't quite understand it. The priests didn't understand it. The bishops didn't understand it. Wait a minute. This wasn't even a dogmatic council. This was a pastoral council, so they said. It should have been easy to understand. Pastoral theology is much easier than dogmatic theology. It should have been easy, so to speak. That they, here's what we're going to do. But he said, so people people just didn't understand it, and then, you know, things got out of control, and blah, blah, blah. I even heard Bishop Sheen once say, Bishop Sheen said in a sermon he gave at St. Patrick's Cathedral in the early 1970s, he actually went on to say something like, the, the case that has erupted in the church. He says people have, he actually said this, people have gone crazy, he said. They said the nuns taking their habits off, the priests aren't acting like priests anymore. This was no mere accident. And there's no confusion. There was no misunderstanding. This was designed. I mentioned the Council of Trent and the decrees on the Holy Eucharist. There's a lot more in the Council of Trent. There's In my opinion, the Council of Trent was the greatest council in the entire history of the church. After that council, there was no confusion, because not only did Trent call for, not only did she define dogma after dogma in regard to the sacraments, the mass, there are also a number of what we call disciplinary canons. The disciplinary canons were, for example, priests are going to be attached either to a diocesan bishop or to a religious congregation, period. There will be no more roaming clerics. There will only be Roman clerics. (laughs) No more roaming clerics. Furthermore, the Council of Trent said bishops are going to stay home in their diocese. Bishops never stayed in their diocese. Generally speaking. They were out at their summer homes, you know. They have to be in their council of bishops will stay in their diocese. And a whole number of ecclesiastical disciplinary canons including dioceses will have seminaries. Every diocese will have a diocesan seminary. Before, this was the practice of the church. Uh, A priest who was going to be in a religious order, he lived in his religious house, but he would go to like the University of Paris, and he would do all his philosophy and theology at the University of Paris, which was a Catholic university, the first university actually established in the whole world, and then he'd go back and live in his religious house. Diocesan priests... We just live somewhere, and they would go and do their theology. They'd be tested, and then they would be ordained. They were not in a seminary. Trent said there's going to be seminaries, and the first bishop to really put into the practical uh, uh, order the teachings of the Council of Trent and all the disciplines was St. Charles Borromeo, who was the Archbishop of Milan. He is the first diocesan bishop, it is said, to establish a diocesan seminary. And my point is, as I just keep going on up here, my point is, there was no confusion after the Council of Trent. There was no, like, gee, what do they mean? What are we supposed to do? You know, after, after Vatican II, you had the so-called identity crisis among priests. They didn't know what to do anymore. And then the sisters, you know, wanted to leave the convents and they wanted to live in apartments. And they wanted to get purses. And they wanted to put makeup on and just be part of the world. There was no confusion after Trent. There was no confusion after the First Vatican Council when Pius IX Decree, papal infallibility. No one was confused. Why after Vatican II was there so much confusion? Chaos and disorder. Wasn't chance. It was designed. It was designed that way because all these changes were meant to change the Catholic religion. It was, it was an, an implosion, explosion. an explosion. Bishop Kelly once said to me that when John XXIII made that statement, that ambiguous statement which, in which he said, we're going to change the way the dog was presented, but it was said in such a way as we're going to change the deposit of faith. His Excellency told me that every bishop should have rose to their feet and cried out, Heresy. If the Holy Ghost came to the council moments before, when they had sung the veni or spiritus, calling him down from heaven, seeking his divine light and guidance. If he did come,
1: it was at that
0: moment in John the 23rd speech that he left Vatican II. And perhaps it was at this point, as my own personal opinion, As I've already mentioned, that at that moment, John XXIII was struck down from the papacy. And the restrainer, whom St. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, who holds back all the evils, in my personal opinion, he was removed. Because I believe, again in my personal opinion, the restrainer whom St. Paul talks about Will hold back all these evils is Peter. And Peter lives in his successor, the Roman pontiff or the bishop of Rome. So, what John the 23rd then ultimately called for in his opening speech, the idea that the divinely revealed dogmas hold the positive faith could be changed in their presentation and thus the very substance could be changed and that is modernism that is modernism modernism which holds that dogmas are not fixed or constant truths, dogmas develop. They develop to fit the needs of the time. And thus, what John Twenty-Third said is heretical. And that is not my mere opinion. Oh, it's my opinion on the restrainer. But what he said is heretical, that's not my opinion. That is the infallible teaching of the Church and the teachings of Pope Saint Pius X and Vashendi and Pope Pius XII in his encyclical letter Ulani Generis, in which Pius the Twelfth condemned what he called dogmatic relativism. Dogmatic relativism is that dogmas can be expressed in various ways to fit the needs of the time. And furthermore, the Vatican Council of 1870 infallibly declared that if anyone says that by reason of the progress of science, a meaning can be given to the dogmas of the church other than that which the church understood and understands them. Anathema sit. Anathema sit. Let him be condemned. What John the Twenty Third did was already condemned at Vatican I in eighteen seventy. But he made his opening remarks, and not a single bishop there said a word. And Roman curia was then stayed. And modernism, modernism had its day. I should say, its hour. Because the devil has his hour, but God has the day. Make no mistake about it. Vatican II was 100% modernist. It is all unacceptable. It is all worthy of condemnation. A few months ago, some of the sisters were traveling into Connecticut. The Knights of Columbus had arranged to bring over from France the incorrupt relic of the heart. Of Saint John Vianney, and they had it in some church in Connecticut, and some of the sisters went to see it, and uh, some of the seminarians and priests went as well. I think it was one of—I thought it was one of the sisters, maybe it was one of the seminarians—who told me. <clears throat> he said one of the members of the Knights of Columbus asked him, "What seminary are you from?" Because he had never seen seminarians dress in black suits and black ties. He sees them in blue jeans and t shirts and all that stuff. But he said, Well, what seminary are you from? And he told him Immaculate Hearts Seminary, Roundtown. And who we are, what we do, congregation, St. Lies to them. He said, Oh, you're rebels. The rebels. So the seminary told me this. Maybe it's good I'm not there for those things. (laughs) I just said, He said that. He called you a rebel. And then I, I thought back. In the 1980s, whenever Archbishop Lefebvre made the headlines, they called him the rebel Archbishop of Switzerland. And I said to the seminarian, I said, you know what? I said in the future, respectfully, you know, we should respond. But we should point out very respectfully, because, you know, it's not Christ-like to do name-calling. right? But respectfully, we should have said to this gentleman, I think it's the other way around. Because Vatican II was the rebellion. And you are continuing this rebellion. Vatican II turned everything upside down. Changed the Mass, which was the most obvious for the laity. Changed the sacramental rites. Changed the catechisms. Changed the interpretation on Scripture. So my oldest brother came home from first grade in 1967. He said the three kings was a, a myth. It was made up. never happened. That's what our nuns, the teacher, the sister who taught them first grades. That was the rebellion. So we're not the rebels. I said, you should respectfully can point out, you're the rebel. You're with the rebellion. Not us. We are the ones who are still holding the line we are the ones who are still preserving the sacred deposit of faith. As Christ has given it to the apostles, the apostles to the bishops in the church, we still have it. Now, one last thing in regard to John the 23rd speech. And that last thing is something that he laid the groundwork for the ecumenical or false ecumenism that has just gone off in the new church. Towards the end of his opening address, he said he wanted to address, and the council was going to address the problem of Christian unity. John twenty-third said, and these are his words, the, the entire Christian family has not yet fully attained the visible unity and in in truth desired by Christ. The Catholic Church considers, considers it her duty to work actively so that there may be fulfilled the great mystery of that unity. He went on to say the brotherly unity of all, embracing not only Christians, but those who follow non-Christian religions as well, to be brought into the fullness of our charity and love. In other words, the brotherly unity of all religions. Catholic, Protestant, infidel, pagan. He says, this is the fullness of charity that Christ wills. And he said, this is what this council, he went on to say, this council must bring this about. The unity of he is talking about is not what the church had been doing for centuries. And I'm talking about going into the whole world baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost. I'm talking about since the time of the apostles and their successors and missionaries, even until the 20th centuries, going out to pagan lands and converting pagans and infidels, and bringing them into the Catholic Church. That's not what he was talking about. Because after Vatican II, there were fellowship meetings set up, dialogues, fabricated prayer services, and which... You know, the priest and the Protestant minister down the street would do the proverbial embrace in the sanctuary, and we're all one. But there was no, since Vatican II, no serious attempt at bringing in non-Catholics into the Catholic faith. Generally speaking, it was gone. Bishop Kelly told me once he remembered when Archbishop Lefebvre went to the Vatican in the 1970s to meet Paul VI. He blasted him. As Archbishop Lefebvre blasted Paul VI. He told them, you are destroying the kingship of Christ. Because Paul VI was one of the first ones who have his ecumenical practices going on of signing agreements on what we all agree on, but not a word about bringing them into the faith. And the Archbishop, to his credit, told him, You are destroying the kingship of Christ. Archbishop LeFleur had been a missionary in North Africa for so many years. He was constantly, that was their work, to bring them into the faith, not to have. Coexist side by side with devil worshippers? Who was to bring them into the faith? It all changed with Vatican II. It all changed. To give you an idea, John the 23rd insisted that Protestants and even non-Christians attend Vatican II. He wanted them there. Oh, there's a famous picture. But among those who were in attendance were members of the Russian Orthodox Church. The Russian Orthodox Church despises and has always despised the Catholic Church. There were also members of the Syrian Jacobite Church. There was the Orthodox Coptic Church of Egypt. The old Catholics of Utrecht Holland were there. They were the ones who broke off because of papal infallibility in 1870. The Anglican Church, representatives of the Anglican Church were there. The Lutheran Church was there. The Society of Friends, the Quakers, were there. The World Methodist Church was there. The World Council of Churches of Geneva was there. And even non-Christians, religions, were present. In fact, you know, in the Council Day Book, which is the Diary of Vatican II, the official report of the day-to-day operations of Vatican II, it is reported in there that Archbishop Peter Martin Noden took stood up at the council and vehemently complained that I see the representatives of Christian faiths, our brothers in Christ from other Christian religions, but where are the non-Christians? Why aren't they being represented here? See, Archbishop Took was a modernist. Many people don't know that. He was a modernist. He was upset that the non-Christians weren't there to partake in this glorious council. And then he was tapped on the shoulder by the Bishop of Mexico who said, they're here. And then he apologized for his outburst. Vatican II, John XXIII laid the seeds for the false ecumenical movement that we see all around us today.